Invest in yourself today with our Insider Pro product, which gives you the career path to reach the next step in your cybersecurity journey. Join today on Cyberate.it using the discount code PODCAST. In this special episode of the Cyberate Podcast, we bring you the COVID Chronicles. Hosting the series is Brian Dykstra, the CEO of Atlantic Data Forensics, who will be joined by guests from across the industry about how the COVID-19 pandemic is affecting them. In this episode, we will hear from Chuck Bubeck, the Executive Director of the Maryland Innovation Center, Kevin Crane, the CISO of the University of Maryland Medical System, and John Ward, the Director of Global Safety and Security for Marriott. For everybody out there in Cyberland, land, this is uh, Brian Dystra again. Uh, let's see, I always forget to tell the date. Today is 6-5-2020, um, and this is our fourth, because Thomas is keeping me up to date, edition of the COVID Chronicles. Uh, I have with me an illustrious group of folks today, but we are going to talk about in innovation and having to move and switch up fast uh, during this whole pandemic and, and uh, some of the other crises that's going on there and what they all did. But first, let me introduce my guests, and we're going to start with Kevin Crane from the University of Maryland Medical System. Hi. Uh, good morning at the time of the recording. Anyway, at afternoon, I understand it. Uh, I'm Kevin Crane from the University of Maryland Medical System. We're a 14-hospital uh, health network across the state of Maryland, including the State Shock Trauma Center in Baltimore. Uh, been with uh, with UMS for the past four and a half years. Uh, prior to that, uh, seven years with Johnson and Johnson Pharmaceutical R and D. Uh, seven years with General Electric Company, and then the Army and Tennessee Army National Guard. Prior to that, so privileged to be here, and I appreciate it. As I understand it, Kevin, you're now the longest serving CISO at UMS. Is that correct? Yeah, I appear to be uh, setting a new record. So. Every day is a milestone for him. All right, and next we have with us John Ward from uh, Marriott. He is the Director of Global Safety and Security. Yeah, th thank you, Brian. So uh, for our organization, crisis falls under uh, global safety security. So I've um, been awfully busy lately um, with Marriott for 17 years. Um, before that, uh, Northeastern University in Boston, which is my hometown. Apologize for the accent. It will come out and um, criminal justice major and um, Marriott the whole, whole career. That's about, that's about right from college, right to Marriott. True, I was looking him up on LinkedIn today. He's, it's like two lines. I was in college and I've been at Marriott. That tells you something about the company, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. All right, and, and last but not least, I have Chuck Bubeck with us, who is the executive director of the brand new, not brand new, but pretty new, Maryland Innovation Center. Uh, nice to meet you guys. That's the great thing, I guess, uh, about uh, Brian's uh, format here is we don't know each other, which makes it interesting. Um, as Brian said, I'm the recently uh, brought on executive director for the new Maryland uh, Innovation Center in Howard County. It's basically the sort of combining of what was the Maryland Center for Entrepreneurship, the Howard Tech Council, and it's run by Howard County uh, Economic Development. Uh, so we've been building basically a 65,000 square foot facility focused with an accelerator, a startup facility, and basically business services all under one roof. Uh, I've been there since November. Uh, previous to that, I had run and started up several other companies and sold them and ran them along the way, most recently a large managed service provider uh, that I sold in uh, November, good timing, um, before things kind of took a turn there. Uh, previous to that, I spent uh, actually 10 years at Apple back in the good old Apple days, which was uh, right before the Mac came out. 
uh, and I spent 10 years there. And before that, I had also started up one of the first computer retailers here uh, in the area. So I'm a fan of Brian. So when he tells me to come somewhere, I just follow him. <laughs> that's, that's not exactly true, but uh, but <laughs> Chuck, Chuck, to his credit, is the is the first ever kind of lead of the innovation center or or uh, or what they've been calling it, the accelerator over there that's actually been a no kidding CEO of multiple companies um, and successfully sold them off. So it's, it's like a bright and shining new day over there at the Innovation Center. with Because, uh, you know, that Patrick Wynn guy that was leading it before. Awful. I'm still Awful. cleaning just, up that mess. Just truly terrible, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> All right. First question. Uh, this, this one's a, an easy softball sort of one. Uh, we'll pop back around to you, Kevin, since you're on my right here. Um, but how has COVID-19 affected your industry and in your case, um, specifically? Yeah, from an industry perspective in healthcare, um, the phishing attacks right out of the gate. Uh, we received credible threat intelligence early in, uh, in the pandemic, uh, indicating over 100,000 new COVID-19 related domain names had been registered. Um, and, a, and a large percentage of them had already been identified as uh, as malicious or malignant, as we like to say in healthcare. Um, right. We so, saw, I'm sorry? So I've been working with the CTI League folks, and they, they've identified probably hundreds of thousands at this point. They're working with law enforcement to get it taken down. Um, but it, it it seems to be a, a continuous. I mean, it, it, as many as they, they can pop up in a day, uh, you know, and a bunch of other agencies working on it too, it gets it just pushes right back out just as fast. Yep. Yeah. And the, the phishing attacks, we measure those and, and report those as part of our KRI, you know, key risk indicators. Um, we average about 1,400 detected and blocked phishing attacks per day, uh, plus the occasional one or two that, uh, that squeak through undetected. Mm -hmm. um, in mid-March, that jumped to over 2,200 uh, in a single day for two days in a row. Um, with no discernible pattern in terms of the source. So whether it was a botnet or, uh, or just very well-planned attacks, uh, the volume spike was, uh, was significant. Um, the thing that we noticed about opportunists was, again, as the Secret Service categorizes uh, cyber act actors as either wolves or coyotes, right? Wolves being government-grade or corporate, organized, well-funded attackers, Coyotes being the, uh, the, uh, the individual attackers who will tend to spray large volumes of, of attack traffic uh, looking to just land one hit. Um, what we saw was, uh, was an awful lot of government-grade attacks, not, not so much as us, but across the industry. We saw, for example, um, Brno Czech Republic, a ransomware attack that knocked out that hospital for, uh, for a long period of time disabling their, uh, their online systems and their entire network. Um, we saw the Ukraine and South Korea hit with what appear to be government-grade cyber attacks. And then within the U.S., uh, we got bulletins indicating the World Health Organization was being impersonated uh, to yeah. spread uh, misinformation. Um, and yeah, there's and those WHO emails and the, uh, and the ones for, you know, the fake CDC emails. Those, yep. those really catch people because... People are legit scared out there, right? So they see, you know, brand new treatment options or new testing centers available in your area. 
you know, mm-hmm. why, why wouldn't they click on it, right? Scams. Uh, from our end, the, the single largest pattern that we saw in terms of Pareto statistics was PPE scams, uh, masks, gloves, hand sanitizers, other respirator type equipment, uh, a lot of scam traffic. Uh, in some cases, uh, the coyote pattern of, of sprays in, you know, hundreds, if not over a thousand uh, but in a lot of cases, wolf patterns where they had researched enough to land their emails right on our supply chain leadership, um, mm-hmm. who then promptly escalated it for research. And, and we did uh, find and report to them that it was a scam. Yeah. Um, the intents are typically the same. It's financial fraud. You know, it, yeah. you know they, they, they taught in the Army, all, all warfare is economic and cyber warfare is is. Lo- follows that same pattern. Uh, so financial frauds, misinformation, disruption of services, uh, and then theft of information. I'll, I'll end with the, uh, the fake Johns Hopkins COVID-19 map that, uh, that hit earlier this year. Uh, the domain name, very realistic looking. It was corona-virus-map.com. Uh, it was found to contain Trojan horse malware, information theft. Um, and we detected uh, inbound emails with that link in it and, uh, and had to go into instant response mode to, uh, to scrub those. Um, that was a very well-targeted attack and, and one that's been seen widely across the U.S. and I'm sure elsewhere. Yeah, all so of that, our health care. The, uh, the, the impact across the industry. From an UMS perspective, the, the big you know, early learning experience for us was field care environments and how those changed during a pandemic. Field care in, in healthcare typically is mass vaccinations, um, things like uh, like mass medication dispensing. Those can be done on paper medical charts um, very easily. It's a single encounter and it's very short latency or very short duration. So a patient can drive up, stick their arm out the window, sign the consent form, vaccinate them and off they go. Field testing is another matter entirely where you draw a blood specimen or a nasal swab uh, and then have to label it, package it, send it back to the central lab for a test that could take two or more days. Um, Doing that on paper was identified early on as being problematic. So for the first time, we had to project our full electronic medical record system into a field environment or several of them. so the logistics associated with securing that network traffic over a VPN tunnel and, and providing enough bandwidth and a low enough latency that the experience for the users in a field tent uh, would be found acceptable to them compared to what they're used to in the hospital where it's all gig ethernet, um, a real challenge, but one that having done it now, we've got muscle memory for for next time. Right, hey, don't, don't go too far into that yet because I definitely want to talk to you about what you guys did down at the convention center and stuff like yeah. that. So that'll be an interesting piece. John, skipping to you, not exactly the best of times for the, the hospitality industry. Mm. Uh, no, no. Tell us about not. it. Yes. Yeah, so hospitality industry particularly hit hard by the pandemic. Um, restaurants, as we know, sports events, any other kind of big venues, which attract a lot of people, any stadium size events, but also for us, the, you know, the, the, the virtual just shutting down of, of our lodging operations throughout the globe, really. Uh, for, for me, it began back the second week of January uh, when we got the call. We had a problem over in the Wuhan province in China, where China's a huge market for us. Right. And so uh, the, the picture began, began uh, to become painted for all of us on, on the global security side of 
what the future impact is if it could not be contained within the area. Uh, we saw a few of these pandemics in the past, the H1N1, SARS, and, and those few that really were contained a bit more. So I think in everyone's minds, we're thinking, you know, contain it here and, and it won't begin to spread. But this one was a little bit different. And, and it, we all know what happened. Um, and so as an organization, we, we jumped to uh, what we call a tier three company response. And so we have four stages of crisis tier zero being an actual stage. So for us, this was jumping almost all the way to the top, which I think really benefit us in the long run because we began these calls with um, just the our, our continent leader for Asia Pacific, but we had all of our other continent leaders on there. And so we were talking about efforts to contain, save business, get PPE to the hotels, um, you name it, work with first responders, provide rooms for them, help the community. And so all of the other continent leads are, are on the calls along with our global uh, security group. And we're, and we're listening to the efforts there. And lo and behold, as it spread, we were able to stay ahead in all the other continents as it, as it impacted us. Our, our whole crisis operation, as it was written in our preparedness book, went, went really well, really well, but um, had to be tweaked quite a bit uh, as the situation evolved. And so we found that we can't continue to run the globe with all of our resources tied up on that one tier team. We had to all, and the term we're using is skill up, and then bring that back down to really the tier one team and back to the continent level and address it as a continent because we just didn't have the manpower to continue on, on a global scale. We needed our folks that had that experience from the tier three team to come over and run a tier one team and handle it that way. Um, Kevin, as you had mentioned, big uptick uh, on the cyber side. And so I'm on our physical security and crisis group, not on, on the cyber side, but we were working hand in hand as we found that um, some of the uh, some of the websites absolutely fraudulent. They're looking for credit card up front. You're never going to get your product. But what was mixed in there also are pop-up vendors that really did have a product and the product was costly, except the product was of such poor quality that it really did the organization no good. And so as such a large organization uh, with franchisees and managers and communication always being difficult, we have a lot of, of franchisees to get out to, we have a lot of owners to get out to, it became an ongoing battle to keep our owners and our franchisees and even some of our managed hotels in line with not going over to the fraudulent uh, websites, entering any information or procuring their own supplies from us and paying top dollar for a product that you're going to get and it's going to fall apart or slide off your face and be of no use. And so we, we scrambled, got a lot of communication out, but still had a bit of scrambling to do to stop all of that. But we, we were successful. I don't, I don't think that we would hit uh, a single time, but every man on board effort uh, continues to this day. Our hotels basically are all sort of still closed down, um, a bit of reopening in the southern states, very low occupancy in those states. Um, we were doing many crisis calls for all of our confirmed guests and associates. As there are some similarities in how to manage those incidents, there's a lot of uh, little local nuances such as border health differences, local jurisdiction laws. And so we're running crisis calls for all of those which are managed by me and my team. And so our day now consists of uh, crisis calls for a confirmed associate, at our hotels, confirmed guests at our hotels, 
and now a whole lot of, of crisis and preparation calls for the riots impacting all of our major cities. Uh, we, we have hundreds of hotels impacted by the riots, and we're really focused more on the preparation side. Obviously, we don't want it to happen. We don't want to be caught by surprise. And so preparation side may mean anything from enhanced staffing and keeping the front door locked for key card entry at any time, all the way up to complete closure of the hotel, boarding it up and putting in armed security in there to report out on the asset. And unfortunately, we've had to do that uh, now for a number of our assets, a handful so far. Um, we're working closely with our intelligence group. We're working closely with their law enforcement contacts to try to predict any sort of large-scale agitators that may come into a particular city and escalate the violence and the damage. And as quickly as they're pumping us intel, we're reaching out to the properties and we're saying to jump to, you know, jump to preparation level four and how to call with them to talk them through how to do that. Uh, resources are depleted. It's hard to find third-party security. It's hard to find plywood companies to come out and board up. It's hard to get associates to work because uh, rightfully so, they're a little bit nervous to come in. And so um, every day is just about staying ahead and planning to the best of our ability. And, and luckily so far, we've managed to stay ahead. Wow. Yeah. Uh, as bad as I expected it would be. <laughs> it's such yeah. a lot of stuff. And then, yeah. then the rioting on top of that. So that's, uh, that's yeah. tough. Um, although, I mean, you guys have a, a fair amount of experience with having unusual events happen on or near your hotel properties. So you in, in, in normal times would be much, much quicker response to that sort of thing. Hey, Brian, related to yeah. something John, John just said about the uh, boarding up of, of some of the facilities, I, I give you the other, the other twist to that is uh, there was a large protest planned here uh, in Columbia by the Columbia Mall, and it turned out to be uh, really uh, a very peaceful uh, uh, thing, except AMC Theaters, who's located in the mall, took the opportunity to board up their theater when nobody else had boarded anything up and the amount of negative, you know, press they've gotten over that by the 10, I'm guessing 10,000 people who met, uh, over by, uh, by, by the, ended up down by the lake from the mall. It was, uh, sure. so it's just so funny how you can prepare for the worst and it turns out your move, it, which by the way, I'm sure AMC made that decision at a corporate level, right? Looking at major cities and didn't look at, this, this minor in the scheme of things, uh, uh, protest rally, I would call it not a riot. So, yeah. Yep. Um, you know, I agreed on that. Um, everyone, um, has in their back of their mind, the side that they, they choose a political side, how they feel about sure. the event. And it's, and it's, it's really, really, really divided and, and a challenge that we have with our facilities are we're housing National Guard, we're housing policing that may come in from the suburbs or maybe from other states. And so we, we could be looked at as maybe taking one side or another as opposed to just running our business and, and, sure. and, yep. and making yep. make revenue. And, and we really don't have, um, you know, a side that we've chosen at all. We're just providing sure. Sure. providing room. And so yep. Yep. That, that's in the back of our mind of yeah. how, how, do we, how do we make that happen while still remaining neutral. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and uh, I mean, even in a, a group of ten thousand mostly 
peaceful marchers. I mean, all it takes is, you know, two kids throwing rocks and it all turns, you know, in a heartbeat. Sure. Yes. Anyway, um, on that happy note, Chuck. Yes. You you, um, you tried to run an incubator and, uh, you know, an accelerator and outreach programs and everything. And then, uh, you know, boom, February comes around and. Yeah. Well, actually, and I've got, you know, I have that, but also since uh, this center is actually funded and run by the Howard County Economic, Economic Development Authority, I've also been pulled into that side of it, which was working with all this PPE money, I'm sorry, PPP money that went through and, and seeing sort of the landscape here in, in the county, which as most of you know, is a fairly wealthy county, but it has pockets of all kinds of businesses. And to see how this, you know, this event has kind of been felt by every single company, by our you know top cyber companies to obviously the, the restaurants uh, and, and any kind of place we've got, you know, we're the home of the Meriwether Post Pavilion which is, uh, I think it's going to be a while before 10,000 people want to be literally shoulder to shoulder for each other. So the, I've seen that side of it, which has also been tough to watch. On the incubator side, interestingly enough, I had a call about a week or two ago with, um, I'm on the board of the of NBIA, and there was about, represented probably 20 to 25 incubators and startup facilities. And interestingly enough, um, almost nobody had any losses of their startups and all within the, within the facilities. And in other words, most of them were the same as they always were. If not, in some cases, many had pivoted to sort of um, obviously producing PPE uh, stuff, but I found that kind of surprising. In other words, it didn't re- represent the small business side of the impact. And, and then when I thought about it more, if you think about a startup, they're ready for anything. In other words, every day you wake up, if you're one of these startups, you're expecting the, 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 the world to crash in on you. So this actual crash in on you, they're ready for it. They have lower costs. And, and it's just funny how if you're ready to adapt and as a startup, you're built in to adapt. I mean, good news is looked at as there's something behind it. And that's sort of the, you know, the nature as you try to plow forward. So I was actually surprised at the resiliency actually of, of startups and uh, actually startup funding didn't completely evaporate. A lot of the major Companies who were funding these have stayed solid on it. Um, there hasn't been that much pullback. We're not a big mecca here, obviously, of venture money. Uh, we have a lot of uh, smaller, uh, I would say angel, but sort of private money here. And none of that really actually dried up, which was sort of interesting. A lot of deals that were probably uh, beginning got slow, but deals that were close to end actually were funded. So if you looked at the startup community at you know, and they looked at the crisis, it was, uh, it was much different than, than I thought it would be. Of our 30 startups we have in the building, our building, obviously, we, we, uh, we close, obviously. Uh, uh, not to them. We close, meaning that no visitors, so they can't conduct normal business, use our conference rooms, theaters, and stuff like that, but they can um, come and go as they want. And most of them managed to move into the virtual environment, which I know you've got uh, as a conversation, so I won't get into that, Brian, the challenges of that. But um, in, in my call with the rest of the regional, we'll call Maryland um, startup facilities, most of them uh, were impacted financially, obviously, because they are dependent upon the uh, rent of those startups, usually, or other money they can get a hold of, grant money, and all of that got frozen in time. We were lucky enough at the uh, Maryland Innovation Center because we're funded by the county. Uh, I didn't face that same challenge, which was good for us. So we did not charge rent, as did none of my peers, uh, to start facilities starting really basically for April, May, and now are just starting to charge again. And uh, even the, uh, I know the Maryland, University of Maryland Associated ones have kind of followed that same pattern. And so that's, uh, but the health of that industry shocked me, to be honest. So that's my, my message here. The startup community um, 
remained sort of still focused in on what they did. And as I said, there's a couple of our, our companies that actually made a quick pivot and uh, moved over to create some, uh, you know, PPE products. And if they were right kind of in the space that they could do that. And, and uh, that's the beauty probably of being a startup is you could be mobile, you can move fast. And I, you know, I, I, I look at John and Kevin and the, the mega, mega mountains you have to move to get things done. And, and I, I respect what you guys, what you guys to do, to do to do that. And then you look at the other end of these startups where they can get on a phone call and say, we're taking a right in the next five feet and they, and they take a right turn and can pull it off. So. Yeah. Oh. Chuck, you know, it, it, it's a great thing. And it's very interesting that, you know, being smaller and starting up that you have that ability to be more nimble and then also pivot uh, I was in a conversation with uh, Sonder Hotels, and if you're not familiar, they're, they, they sell all of their product on Airbnb, but okay. their business model is a bit different, and, and they they actually go out and get leases, and they mm -hmm. work for the lease with have the ability to rent out their asset as a hotel on a nightly basis, and so we were going around and just talking about how low occupancy is and how much of an impact this has had, and, and Sonder spoke up and said, oh, we're, we're at 65%. And, and we're scratching our head, you know, how in the world could the startup be at 65%? And, and the answer was they have taken all of their hotel short-term business because they have this lease and they just rent it out for a year, all of their, mm. all of their availability in the markets. And people jumped on it, signed a year lease and 65% and, and growing. And so they pivoted that startup and, and are successful and are doing very well. And they're going to weather this storm, which has decimated the rest of the hospitality industry very well. Interesting. Well, pivot, pivoting is the story of the, of the time. And I don't know if we we'll have time to get in that, Brian, but clearly, you know, a couple of these organizations that can pivot at something like this are finding themselves uh, in some ways, potentially better off than they were before this, before this crisis. And that's something that we're sort of pushing and, and preaching sort of Brian is aware of this world 2.0 thing we're doing, which is focusing on how do you take advantage of a, of a, of a disaster like this and use it as a, change point. And again, I, I look at John and Kevin and think I, I you're to be in your shoes and look at want to do change management in, in these big, uh, behind, you know, if this big semi truck or big freight liner and, you know, it, it's tough. And so, uh, but this is the time to do it. And, and we're, we're heavily promoting that with our, uh, our startups and we're looking at funding some programs to get, uh, businesses into sort of fast tracking some change, man. It's a great time to look at your customer, look at, you know, look at the things you do. So that's, that's question number three. We'll get. Sorry, to I know I, I'm trying to avoid him. <laughs> All right, so so popping back over to Kevin. Uh, question number two, which is my second favorite question, I think actually, is um, what what was the you know the the no headlights car that came out of the dark and, and hit you in this this whole uh, pandemic experience? Um, you know what what was that thing you just weren't expecting, and then. How did you guys solve, re-engineer around it, you know, make changes to accommodate it, you know, and, and deal? Yeah, so the best example that, that I'll lay out was the, the unexpected uh, length of this whole remote work situation that we find ourselves in. So the initial heavy lift of, of moving all the administrative people that we could, you know, from you know, billing and revenue cycle, IT, human resources, that heavy lift we saw that uh, you know that coming, and and you know with our CIO and CTO, we were able to to pivot on that quickly. Um, but we didn't know it was going to be this long. So patching all these thousands of devices that are now sitting in people's houses, um, not touching our corporate uh, networks, 
um, required some risk-based decision-making. Uh, the amount of bandwidth that might be available over a VPN tunnel into a house was a variable. Um, normally our endpoint patching happened off hours and then we'd pick up the stragglers during business hours. Well, you know, it, it came back to a risk decision. Uh, do we accept the risk of not patching? You know, no, you know, these patches were, uh, were critical. They were high CBSS scores. Yeah. Uh, so we, uh, we began trialing and then we found that, uh, that the hit wasn't as bad as, as it was predicted. So we actually shifted our patch schedule into business hours while people were using the assets. Um, with negligible effect on their productivity. Uh, in my case, I didn't even know my machine had been patched. Uh, I, had to, I had to go into the control panel of my, of my Windows laptop and verify that it had been patched. Uh, so it was, a, it was a pivot that we didn't expect to have to make. Uh, you know, the guesses were two weeks, maybe four, and then we'll all be back to work. Uh, here we are two months plus later um, and now having to sustain these assets in a secure manner without being able to touch them. Right. Well, and then that that return date varies regionally. Um, we had uh, uh, we had the CISO of Levi Strauss, uh, excuse me, Deputy CISO Levi Strauss, on uh, a couple of weeks ago, and he was saying that you know the San Fran area where they're based, um, the decision had already been made that you know they wouldn't even consider returning to work until sometime end of July. Mm. You know, and that was. They'd made that decision back in April. Yeah. Um, you know, whereas Sean was saying, you got some of the southern states are already opening up, uh, so, you know, certain areas, and then regionally, I mean, there are regions in the country where there's there's almost no, no, you know, COVID cases, right? You know, uh, you know, southeastern Texas, there's hardly anything. <laughs> of course, there's hardly anything in southeastern well, Texas. I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> and a lot of the farm belt country also not experiencing, you know. Uh, a, a lot of uh, a lot of COVID nineteen. So I mean, you know, available to open up in places like that, it's uh, makes it a little bit different. John, what about you? Uh, what, uh, what what was the the one big thing that you just didn't see coming? Well, certainly, number one is, is duration. Uh, I think everyone expects the pandemic to come in, hit for a couple months, and then move along and not just continue to circle and swirl and present the issues that it's doing, um, really just draining the funding from, from our operation, from our owners, from us as a corporation, you name it, across the board. But I think uh, Kevin had a great point, too, about the not expecting the work from home. We're not a, a very heavy work from home. Uh, organization on the above property level, as we call it, the, the, our corporate level. And so we had just rolled out a new product called uh, Microsoft Teams. And it was still uh, sort of in a, in a trial phase. And so, you know, as you can imagine, uh, large organization, our networks are very, very, very locked down by our IT group. And so we did, we have Zoom application. We really have much just this Teams application and you could sign up for it. You didn't have to have it at the time optional and people were really just starting to learn it when all of it hit and, and we shut down our corporate office and we really didn't know how the impact would go. And so uh, not so much from a security side, but more from a, um, an understanding and user-friendly type side, we, we pumped out all sorts of um, material to help folks learn it. And then we had, you know, a monthly, it was, maybe, it was bi-monthly check-in call to see how the efficiency of the above property organization was running. Everyone was scared because it was all meeting room, go in and talk it out 
type meetings before. It had all switched to virtual. And, and, and it was amazing because within just a short period, couple months, uh, it, we were right at um, almost 100% efficiency. And, and right now, I, I believe there's no rush to have to get that building open, which is great because Maryland's still, um, you know, still a state that's maybe just starting its its downswing now in the number of cases, but it's still, you know, a hazard. But there's no rush to have to get that done and bring everyone, anyone back to a, a hazardous, uh, potentially hazardous environment because the application is working well for us. Well, that's good. It's a fair point. The, uh, you know, the, the risk of bringing people back in uh, with the kind of efficiency that you get with remote work um, really doesn't offset that small amount of benefit uh, bringing people back in. So the argument to, uh, to return to work, I think, diminishes over time for those companies that are like yours that, that were able to make that pivot. Yeah, I'm pretty confident that there, that there may be some um, things looked at with the future operating model because it does seem to be does seem to be working well. So I'm, I'm sure it's being looked at either uh, HR, IT lens, or even a higher lens than that. Yeah, we, we have large clients that have actually uh, dumped major portions of their real estate holdings uh, during during the, the pandemic here because two, three months in, they just decided, you know what, well, we, we really don't need that office. We're, we're operating just fine without it. And that's a $2 million a year drain on the budget that uh, we could do a lot, lot better with. So uh, we had, uh, we had uh, who was it? Uh, David Shimroy from, uh, mm-hmm. uh, from uh, McKenzie, uh, McKenzie, no, uh, yeah. Mc- yeah, McKenzie uh, real estate on uh, just, a, just a few weeks ago. And then he was saying that, uh, that they, they expect to see a lot of that. And they're, they're a little bit unsure as to what the future is as a, as a commercial real estate organization is going to look like when you own lots of buildings and, uh, and a majority of your tenants are figuring out maybe we don't really need lots of buildings anymore. You know, yep. maybe we need one location for a headquarters and everything else can be remote. Maybe that's the two worst jobs right now in the country, a concert promoter and commercial real estate salesman, because uh, that's, a tough, that's a tough sale. Yeah, yeah, Dave was saying something like uh, yep. 60, averaging 60 meetings a month with uh, potential buyers, and he was down to like two a month or something like that. It was, it was rough, <laughs> rough out there for Dave. But uh, Chuck, what about you? What's, what, was the, what was the thing that you just didn't, didn't see coming? Um, I, I, probably everything. I mean, I, I, it'd be hard to break that down. And, and I think that what, what was sort of interesting in, in, is how different this was than 2008, uh, the dot-com bust, I mean, how far you want to go back and because of the depth of this. And, and you know, as you look and, and, you know, John, you were talking about, you know, Marriott and, and, you know, the issues Marriott had. And then if you take a Marriott and spin out all the people who make a living off of Marriott, and then those people who make a living off of them, and you know what I'm saying? And so the reach of this, this global reach was just, I think, incredible. And even companies who probably were built to do very well because they had, you know, they weren't, there was no, they're not in the hospitality business, not anything. They still have customers who have to pay them, you know, who are potentially in that business. So the reach of this, I think, was pretty incredible. Um, uh, and the second thing relates to the, uh, so this virtual thing, and Brian, you and I have had this conversation because I've seen a lot of it and there are some, uh, major companies who do are doing very well in in the area that I, that I'm aware of, or really looking at their landscape 
of their in-house workers. And uh, to map what uh, John said, people are finding that they fought it for so long. In fact, if you remember, if you look at HR manuals, it was sort of, that was the uh, exception, not the rule. If you want to work from home and you had to be careful with policies, I think that's going to get flipped because I think companies that got forced into sending workers home just realized productivity, it really didn't go down. And in fact, in you know, maybe that's another conversation someday about how companies have adapted to to work uh, smarter being at home. But I, I, I see, and I, I think most people see now, is that there's no rush back to work uh, for obvious health reasons. Um, and, I, and I think people are finding that the you know, companies that are making these decisions, it's pretty productive. If you look at a small business, uh, you know, the lease that they have is probably their second or third highest expense right behind their employee costs and healthcare. And then if they can drop their third largest expense. Why would they not? Unless they're certainly in a business that would require that. And even, you know, cyber companies uh, who work in some um, top secret, some other things, they've got exceptions. And I know a couple of companies I've talked to have managed to, to go ahead and, and be able to work remotely. So uh, the, the other comment on that is if you look at the federal space or the federal contractor space, which is what, our world around here revolves around right. it. If you think about it, a lot of those companies have had on-site people. That's if they're if they have any kind of staffing stuff, they've been on-site working. They've been remote workers. It just happened to not be they were on site with the customer, right? So the challenges of how do you work with a staff now who you can't stand the water cooler with? Uh, there's probably lessons to be learned from some contractors who have learned how to create a connection to the company that they hire, even though they spend all day, you know, maybe at Marriott, if they're a contractor, you know, working in the IT department. So, uh, right. so I think the depth, uh, Brian, is, I mean, just the depth and how this thing seeped out much further than, than uh, I think I, I, you know, you don't realize a global impact like this until you already looked at it. Yeah, true. Chuck, I think, I think you touched on a, a great point there too, uh, that, that brings a whole other component of this. It, it's the uh, satisfaction and the engagement of the employees. I think that, you know, all of a sudden being able to work from home has, has really made a lot of folks happy, uh, particularly in, in inner cities where the traffic has just gotten exactly. worse and worse and worse. You know, yep. you think of this Maryland area where it's very common to spend an hour, hour and a half per day commuting in, you're, you're, you're polluting, you know, now, now your vehicle's parked at home, you're using the extra hour to either do a personal activity, exercise that you didn't have time to do before, another hour with the kids, or, or maybe you're really busy and you're using that hour uh, to be more productive, leaving work and, and overall Absolutely. you're happier. And, and I think the employers need to consider that to bring someone back, they, they may not want to come back. They may want to say, I, you know, I really liked this work from home thing. It really worked for me. I'm able to now pick up the kids from school. It's just made a difference in my life. And I'm, I'm going to search for a company that will let me work from home. Yep. And, and any company starting up right now, is not buying lease space. So, so if we look at sort of like if you were, you know, if you got to look at the next companies, because they'll be hiring your, your two guys, smart people away from you, right? I mean, meaning that, the, and those companies of the future probably will have that. You're exactly right. And be able to respond better to sort of also the, uh, uh, I don't like to get into any millennial conversations, but that, that was always a challenge, a little bit making that turn. And, and what's funny is this environment is exactly what they want. The freedom to, to do the things, John, you just talked about, to go mountain bike riding at 4.30 and be able to do it and not have to spend time in traffic to do this. So it, this can be spun to be something positive for companies if they, if they probably got it, if they take a look at uh, identifying the areas that are probably not going to work as well. And some of those I've talked to companies about are, and, you know, culture is one of them. 
you know, your company culture was always built around touching and feeling and, and doing stuff, you know, having people around you. How do you do that when you, know, you have your workforce spread out? But again, another topic for another time. Sure. All right. Uh, so question number three, uh, what's the, the big, the big advantage takeaway thing, the big change that you guys made that, you know, you wouldn't have made otherwise that, that you know, that you're going to keep and, and, you know, and be, it's going to become part of the future of, of your organization in the COVID-19 era. What, what did you find that was new and special and great, Kevin? Um, well, it's, I think it's, it's partially us and partially our patients, but telemedicine use has skyrocketed, um, both with our, our patients in their homes or, or outpatient practices, as well as inpatients, um, being able to have medical uh, specialist consults um, over telemedicine terminals rather than waiting for the person to get the page and then come down to the emergency department and then read the chart and go bedside. Um, these happen in, uh, in real time and the, in the positive impact on patient care has been striking. Um, you know, sure did that with my endocrinologist online meeting with her uploaded my, my insulin pump data to her. We did the review together online, you know, she refilled prescriptions. Boom. Yep. It was, it, it was, it was beautiful. Honestly, I don't want to go back and see her in her office anymore. It's a big waste of time. And, uh, and we hear that a lot, that a lot of people who had, had really been recalcitrant to, to use telemedicine, you know, preferring to instead go to the office and, and you know, be able to have that interaction, well, that really wasn't an option uh, in the early stages of the pandemic. And in a lot of places, to, uh, to John and Chuck's point, it's still not because of the, uh, of the acuity of the COVID cases. Um, I think that that's going to persist well beyond the pandemic. And, and I have a similar success story, Brian, where, where uh, we did a telehealth consult and, you know, that we're all asking ourselves, why would we ever drive all the way down there again if we don't have to? This, this is a much better way to do things. Sure. So I, I think our, our investments in telemedicine, and they were considerable at the early phase of this, we operated a, a very high quality telehealth program. Um, but we've been bulking up capacity uh, you know, considerably uh, ever since the, uh, the onset of this. Um, I think that investment's already paid off, and I think it'll continue to both, again, from the patient's perspective as well as our providers uh, because of the comfort level that, that both sides of the care equation have gotten during the pandemic. So if there is a, a good side to this, I think the, uh, the increased use of telehealth will be, uh, will be among those. You know, I, I was really impressed by it, um, and and it saved me probably an hour and a half out of my day, you know, because every, everything was, you know, everything was kind of done. We had a whole 25-minute maybe total consultation, but I'm, I'm not sitting around in a waiting room. I'm not dealing with, you know, all that other stuff that you tend to deal with that, that, that makes going to a healthcare facility for a routine uh, matter such a pain. But now you can't keep up with People Magazine, Brian. That's the problem. <sighs> you know. I'll make do. Um, yeah. You know, I'll get my own subscription. Does anybody subscribe to magazines anymore? I don't even know. Yeah. I think just I think just uh, medical waiting rooms and and uh, barber shops. <laughs> barber shops. There's one that's suffering. I got a I got a barber coming here in a couple of weeks. Uh, to be on the show. Uh, it's going to be interesting. So uh, anyway, I'm having, a, I'm having a barber shop, a gun store, and a liquor store all at the same time. At least two of those are doing very well. Not sure about the barbershop. Yeah. 
but uh, <laughs> all right, uh, John, what about you? What's what's the big takeaway thing that you know you guys did as a change during this is probably going to stick with the company going forward. Well, before I jump into it, I'll just add that I was a haircut every two week guy. Now I haven't got one in four months, so I know my barbershop's failing it. So yeah, I, I think they are something that's hit hard. Uh, you know, I think I think in my opinion, um, we're, we're doing more with less. And so that has caused our, our scope of responsibility to expand, and it's caused us to work uh, outside of what was traditionally our discipline. So we, we've had to grow as manpower's been depleted. We're running with a significantly smaller corporate structure. And so I've learned a lot of things on other sides of other disciplines as I've kind of been to make things happen that I would have never known before. So for me, it's, it's been personal growth, and I think others in my group feel the same way. And so an example of that is we're having so many of these crisis calls supporting hotels for confirmed guests, confirmed associates, riots, that uh, resources are depleted. And so maybe maybe our, our, our director of engineering can't make the call to talk about uh, the right way to board up the windows without um, breaking glass or doing permanent damage. Maybe an HR person can't get on there too, because they're doing another one to talk about their piece. But yet I, I've heard them talk about it and I've understood and I've learned kind of what their wants and ask are. And so I'm able to represent those other, those other disciplines, probably not perfectly as well as they will, but sufficiently enough to make the goal of, of the call uh, come to fruition. So I, I think learning more with less, definitely a positive for us. So everybody becomes a crisis manager. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I mean, the, the, well, they, they, the long they, they term, it's not anyway. a bad thing, right? If everybody else is also taking on those, those same responsibilities, how much more prepared are we as organizations, you know, in, in the future, right? Where, you know, it's not some. It's not one person's job. It's everybody's job, and they've all had to do it before. Yeah, so Chuck, what about over there at the MIC? What are they? Well, um, you know, one of the things is the you know companies, organizations. I think that embrace technology, were better prepared. You know, and you've you've got tens of thousands of examples. If you were uh, if you were a restaurant, and you already had in place online ordering or the ability to do delivery you're ready to go. We saw a lot of uh, restaurants locally fail because that's not something you turn a light switch on. A lot of them couldn't even accept electronic payments with credit cards. They're just, they weren't set up to do that because they were stuck 10 years ago. And, and, and to be frank, some of them failed. Uh, and the other problem is that was compounded. Obviously I won't get into that where you had the delivery services who were making that killing. Uh, cause they could, they could, they could stand them up for them and handle it, but it cost them 30%. And mm -hmm. when the restaurants had no margin anyway, uh, the other example is companies that uh, began to embrace the cloud. Um, Brian, you know, that being the, the managed service provider, I, I, uh, I had what I just, which I just sold last year. Well, that was our focus was, was doing small, medium business for cloud services. And we had moved a ton of law firms, accounting firms into the cloud. And uh, you know how many emails and calls I got from them saying, thank God, because to them work from home, was yeah. was done. They were already logging into the cloud wherever they were. All the stuff was already being shared, and they didn't they didn't have a blip. And and for the organizations who had held off that, it's not a great time to go out and get anything right during the crisis. It, you know everything's in shortage, and if you wanted to all of a sudden move yourself to the cloud, or 
get your employees up to speed on technology, much less have technology. Uh, I think, Kevin, you brought it up. I mean, when you're delivering technology to people's homes, I mean, there's no, there's no standards at all between even internet access or, or what kind of systems they have. So um, I think, I think companies, if there's a less, you know, a little lesson out of this to be prepared is, you know, I'm not saying technology or innovation saves everything, but uh, you certainly, if you think that way, then these kind of events, you could kind of move, move quicker through. And, and in, in this case, we're going to have an example of a graveyard of, of smaller companies who had not embraced technology in some form, and they were never able to, to make the leap now. I mean, trying to build an e-commerce site for your business overnight, it doesn't work. No. No, you're right. That's a long-term prospect. Uh, yeah, I've, I've wondered, uh, you know, and I'm sure you have a better sense for it, but I've wondered here in the, in the Howard County area, just, just how many restaurants just don't ever reopen. I think the number is going to be in the 30 to 40% range, to be frank. Yeah. Uh, nationally, I think. And now, 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 the restaurant business has been fine. Your restaurant business is a shaky business anyway. I think the annual sure. turnover in restaurants is probably 25% or so. But So you could expect it to be the same but worse. And uh, I, I, I do think, I bet you could see 40%, uh, even in a place like the county here, which is, you know, has some affluence and, and uh, et cetera. But some of these, if you can't get seats there, and it's everybody, not to get in the restaurant business, but, you know, they make a lot of margin off of liquor. Right. And you can't, you're not, your bar is not open and you can't sell liquor carry out unless they buy something, which is why you have these places saying, you know, buy a cherry pie slice from us. And then you can have 6,000 bottles of bourbon. And that's kind of what's happened. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be interesting. In two weeks from now, we're having the, uh, the bankruptcy episode. So, uh, was it, uh, oh boy, episode six. Yeah. Bringing in the, the accountants and the, uh, the trustees and the, and the bankruptcy, uh, attorneys to talk about uh, what people need to be doing if that's uh, in your future and how to prepare yourself for yeah. that. It's going well, to be the biggest downer episode ever. We're working on, by the way, which, which, which relates to that is, is we're, we're in the middle of going for a grant to get some money to build a program where a lot of these smaller companies that are now considering bankruptcy, if they all knew who each other was, and you could sort of band together, you know, I, I, I think there's an opportunity for that because you've got a lot of companies who had maybe a channel break off for them, you know, a, a, a supply chain or a product customer. Well, maybe they have a peer in the same business who had something else break off. And you kind of, you know, if you could create sort of a matchmaking for these companies, you know, you know, a person, who, a company that goes bankrupt, that's the worst thing in the world for, you know, for these for small business, that's the, that's everything. And by the way, that means you just took away their retirement. There's no 401ks, but most of them have all their money in the business. So if you yeah. can get three of them to turn into one, um, I think that's the kind of thinking that I'm, I know we're focused on is how do you make lemonade out of lemon, basically. And that's part of your World 2.0 program, right? That's it. That's, that's the thing. See, innovation. Just, just switch and move on. All right. Last question through here. Um, number four, uh, what, what's the future look like? for your industry, your company specifically? Got crystal ball it, Kevin, what do you think? Well, it, you know, no crystal ball required. One of the, the really striking things about uh, this coronavirus strain and, and the, the, the spread of it is the disparate impact it's had on socioeconomic and, and certain races uh, versus others. Uh, we see 
African Americans and Hispanics being um, impacted by this disproportionately versus other groups. Um, you know, the the big challenge that that we have as an IT community in healthcare is how can technology be applied to figure out why that is and to help you know join at the table to figure out what we do about that to prevent this from happening again. Um, the numbers are, uh, are absolutely staggering when you look at, at you know, the higher percentages, not just of infections, but, but uh, fatalities associated with COVID-19. Right. When you focus within socioeconomic groups and races. Yeah. Um, epidemiology, I think, has is, is really stepped up and evolved very rapidly uh, during the course of this pandemic. But there are more questions than answers when you, uh, when you start to unpack the data and look at it. Um, and then, you know, drilling down into healthcare itself, um, revenue losses are, uh, are what, you know, I, I see my peers talking about, uh, the volumes have gone down, uh, not just due to, you know, closure of outpatient practices and cancellation of elective procedures, but people being uncomfortable, if not outright afraid, uh, to seek medical care. So, you know, what, what's, what are the downstream collateral impacts to public health? Um, as this continues and even after things open back up again. How many people have delayed seeking care for conditions that would otherwise be low impact or easily treatable, but now have exacerbated as, uh, as they've been operating in a lockdown? Um, you know, it's a, it's, it's a very large known unknown at this point, um, you know, that, that you know, pushing people into a lockdown state um, is going to potentially have larger impacts over time. Yeah, couldn't agree with you more there. And, and one of the things you all did during this whole thing was you expanded and took over the Baltimore Convention Center, right? Yeah. I mean, see, I mean that if that gives you any kind of you know idea of, of how, how how large a community you were serving, you know, in the Baltimore and surrounding area, and, and just what that took to to do that. I mean, you know, conversion of what uh, the the convention center as well as a hotel nearby, right? Yep. Uh, the, the hotel we ended up giving back, uh, and, and thankfully, uh, as, the, as the curve actually appeared to have flattened out, uh, the convention center remains at full operational readiness and, and as of last week had treated, I believe, between 70 and 80 patients, um, all of whom were COVID-19 positive. Right. Um, so it's uh, it's our surge facility, and, and we've been making good use of it along you know, with our partnership with Johns Hopkins. Um, being able to balance and manage staffing, um, the partnership with uh, with the federal and state governments has been a huge help there. Uh, yeah. It was built out by people who do field uh, field hospital operations and design for a living. Um, it's modular, so it, it can uh, it can grow and shrink as needed to make optimal use of equipment and staffing. Uh, it can hold over two hundred patients, uh, two fifty plus uh, per the original design. So, it, um, you know, it's there when it's needed and it's, it's not overly consuming of resources when it's, uh, when it's at a lower acuity than it was originally designed for. And we're hoping, you know, we're all watching for this, uh, the second wave that may hit. Right. Um, and, and watching the data very closely so that, uh, so that we're able to pivot on that should it happen. Yeah, I've been very concerned after seeing the uh, Delaware, Maryland, and uh, some other state beach photos from Memorial Day. Uh, you know, a weekend ago, thinking, "Ugh, are we just two weeks away from another great big spike?" Because uh, 
people just a little bit too close to each other without masks. Well, so and the, the, the protests the protests don't actually have six foot space either. Yeah, not a lot of spacing in some of that. Yeah, um, yeah. And, uh, and and quite honestly, I'm pretty sure, having sucked out a bit of it myself, that uh, tear gas doesn't make that any better for you. Um, <laughs> that, that, that's a story for another time, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, John, what about you? What's, uh, what's, what's the future for Marriott uh, look like? You know, you know, so for us in our industry, this economic impact, this this impact to our liquidity and our financials is um, it's going to take time to recover, and, it, and it's not going to be one year. For us, it's the lodging industry. I mean, it's going to be a few years down the road to recover, and so a, a lot of a lot of in the lodging industry, it's not so much people going on vacation. That's what we would call transient business. That piece will be the first to pick back up. Um, we're, we know we're seeing it in Florida already; some, some rates jump in. But the, the challenge with us, and we're a, a lot lodging industries, a lot of the funding comes in is that business travel, the right. conventions. Where it's where our you know the, our top ten client customers, large organization Fortune 100, using us exclusively. When are they going to talk about uh, having conventions and return to business? And you know they're they're going to listen to what their employees and what everyone feels safe to do so. And so this is going to go for a couple of years for us and all the focus is on the next couple of years. But then I, I think even going beyond that, um, the lodging industry has just had this unprecedented 12, 13 year run right now um, with the great economy where, you know, it's at levels of profit that it's never been at ever, ever before being built up since 09. But, you know, positions at a high level in the industry have, have turned and people really haven't experienced um, the other downturns like in 09. And so I think it's it, it's a reminder to everyone in the in the industry that when the next event occurs, the next slight downturn, that we're an industry that gets hit really, really hard. And, and I think people are going to think twice about being in that industry, whether it's opening their own restaurant, mm. whether it's getting that job at the front desk. Uh, whether it's opening their own um, bed and breakfast, which has been their dream to do, you know, they're, they're worried that, yeah, they may have a great five or eight year run, but what's going to happen when this goes away. So I think it's going to shape the industry permanently um, where it's going to land is, is, is hard to predict, but I think that we're going to need to figure out uh, the lodging industry. I mean, we'll need to figure out um, how to brace for that, how to plan for that financially, how to minimize that, and how to just always be cognizant no matter how uh, great things start to go from here on out as, as things pick up. I have a question related to that. So, uh, you know, I, I am that business traveler, right? I was in uh, Tokyo, Singapore, and San Francisco uh, in the three weeks prior to, to the lockdown of, of all the, the flights and stuff like that. Uh, so, so I'm that guy. Um, and and I'm a uh, I'm a germaphobic sort of traveler anyway. Uh, I've been wearing a mask for a long time, uh, especially my travels back and forth uh, to Asia. Um, how's the industry going to deal with that that concern uh, of you know sanitation and, and everything in in, uh, in hotel rooms and facilities and things like that? Where you know everybody knows thousands, hundreds of thousands of people pass through on a regular basis. Yeah, the, the question that's on everyone's mind, absolutely. And so uh, 
our, our group over on my side, on the security side, we're, we're fighting these pop-up battles with um, with the virus impacting maybe the, our particular business unit or hotel, um, the riots impacting us, but the entire rest uh, of the organization and, and the other lodging industries organization is focused on one thing, and that's sanitization of the guest rooms. So things as we knew it in terms of housekeeping are going to be completely blown up. And what we're going to see are some more hospital grade type cleaning to take place. You know, when you think of a hospital room and you've been on the cot and you've been ill, they have a program where they go in and they're sterilizing every single bit of that room to make sure the next person coming in is not catching it. And so um, hotels, you're going to see move toward that direction. I think things that are in the room that are high touch are going to be rethought. Um, things that can be taken out will be taken out. You'll, you'll see a change in bed covers, bed sheets. And, and I know for us as an organization, we're, we're going to be proceeding with electrostatic sprayers with, with the chemistry that is effective mm. at eliminating uh, not only that virus, but a number of different viruses, sure. but also being mindful that um, others may not desire that. So you may have an option or if you have allergies and you're a bit concerned about that, you may have some options in a room that does not have that. Or if you want to make sure that there's nothing left in there, then we, we can give you a room that's been completely sterilized to the best of our ability. Right, U- UBC flooding and things like this. <laughs> that's, yeah, the, the, whole, the whole industry is focused on that and, and products and how to do it and, what, posi- and how, you know, what positions are needed to do it. And that, that's where it's going to go. And you guys seen that uh, New York subway system was doing that. They prototyped a few, few of the, the robots, uh, you know, going up and down the cars of the UVC light, basically flooding, flooding the, the cars mm-hmm. to, you know, make mm-hmm. sure that anything that was sitting on the surface was going to be dead, things like that. Chuck, what about you? Uh, apparently, you, you've shifted pretty well, so things are still running, but uh, what's yeah. the future going to look I'm, like? I'm maybe, to, maybe since that's the last question, to sort of leave on a positive note, I, I'm actually optimistic that we may see a renaissance sort of of sort of innovation and sort of this, you know, this pivoting thing here may create uh, you know, the opportunity for people to look at technology or, or, or we'll just say innovation to solve some of these things. You know, I mean, and I think it's, some of it's happening now, but um, I, I'm sort of hopeful that sometimes when you get these big earth shaking events, you do get a lot of startups that come out of that because people have been displaced. You get a lot of, you've got a lot of workers who are displaced and they won't, they may do some unemployment or look around, but a lot of them end up, may end up doing a startup, maybe banding together, starting up and, and creating new opportunities. So I'm, I'm looking forward to sort of, you know, watching that, helping that where we can, at least locally, you know, incent, uh, you know, people and businesses to look at a different way to do things. And as I kind of said at the beginning of the call, I do think it's a great opportunity to, you know, for every organization or business to look at themselves and say, you know, I, this is the opportunity to make a change. You know, you're always moving at 600 miles an hour. And, and it's like these events that stop everything. And that's the great time to relook at, you know, how you're doing. I think a lot of companies um, are doing that. Um, and it's a foreign thing to do because you don't want to, you know, you're, you're always moving too fast to do it. So I, I look at a potential opportunity here to, to really do some uh, interesting things because we may have been asleep a little bit um, on the innovation side for a while. Um, Brian, you and I talked about that book by Matt yeah. Ridley called uh, Innovation, How Innovation Works. And his theory is that we've just, we stopped really 
you know, innovating and inventing things because every, you know, it, it's, it's, it's not happening like it used to. He blames regulation and some other things, which he's right about with patents and stuff. I mean, in general, but you know, he, he suggests we free everything up. Everybody should run in, you know, an, an invention doesn't necessarily have to be a light bulb, right? It can be something that was uh, built off of something else. Um, and, and so it's an interesting, I think those kind of things maybe will get pushed more and, and maybe this next generation is interested in, um, you know, kind of, putting their innovation hats on and just trying to think there's some better ways to do things. Cause this is a, I think we may look back and maybe that's one of the positive things that came out of this. Uh, Could be things like higher education are going to have to change uh, concert venues. Change. A, lot of, a lot of things that are going to be a, have changed, which, which brings about my secret question. Number five for everybody. I love asking. Uh-oh, I didn't see that on the list. Uh, yeah. It's not on the list. Um, is how long is it before you're willing to be in a room of 50 people again? Tomorrow, but with uh, with a mask and good hand hygiene. Coming, coming from the guys in the hospitals, he's already prepared. He's, yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> <I'm a> body <laughs> suit. <laughs> what about you, John? Uh, I, I'm going to go with ten months. Ten months, okay. So, John, would That's that be post-vaccine or um, or just the the change in climate conditions? I, I'd gear more to the change in climate conditions. Um, but, you know, it's wishful thinking. It means a lot to me for it to happen again. So uh, I might be being a, a bit aggressive, um, but I'll go with 10 months. Thank you, Chuck. Uh, I'm kind of maybe in, in between a little bit. I'm, I'm, you know, like everybody, this is, this is one of those things where I have, uh, my wife has elderly parents, you know, that we're trying to, watch for until I, I do think the, the vaccine is, is maybe that magical moment. But the problem is, is that's nowhere near as, as I'm sure Kevin probably is more familiar. And then even if you got it, how you roll that out. Um, and then um, Kevin alluded to it, this uh, resurgence in the fall is getting a little more traction. And then, and then, you know, I was talking to somebody at Maryland, uh, the uh, emergency management, and they said, well, now once you throw on flu season and then once you throw on a, what is predicted to be a very heavy hurricane season here coming up, you get all three of those and, and whatever we braced for before, we probably ought to be in that mode for a while. So I, I would probably, Brian, if it's, if it's, if it's a party you're holding and you have your cigars and bourbon, I'll come with 50 people there that I would, that I would commit to. There you go. <laughs> and that's an important point I'd follow up on. I say tomorrow, um, knowing full well that that I'm not in a high risk group. I have no medical conditions or comorbidities that would increase my risk uh, should I become infected of, of having a bad outcome or ending up in the ICU on right. an intubate. Yep. So um, I say that for my own condition here. Uh, I'm fully aware that there's a large segment of society that, uh, that would incur much more risk than I would going into a room with 50 people, even with uh, a consumer grade mask and, uh, sure. and good sure. yep. And that's my fear is I don't want to give it, you know, it's, it's also, I guess what 25, 30% of us may have it. We don't show any symptoms, but we can spin it off to somebody else. That's also the, that, that's what makes this such a tricky situation. It's not like somebody's walking around with a light bulb flashing on their head saying, I got it. So everybody backs away. But, yep. uh, all righty. Well, I thank you, gentlemen, for being here with me uh, for week four. I really appreciate it. Lots of good conversation there. I'm sure folks will appreciate this next week when it comes out. Uh, we have a pretty good listener base. We're working on a, getting a bigger listener base for this. So, um, And I do get people email me with questions, so I'll, I'll pass those along if they have, if they have stuff for you.
And uh, next week we have the uh, special episode. Strange, uh, strange thing came up this week. Uh, federal court, uh, federal magistrate, uh, basically uh, put out a 14-page ruling talking to um, he, simple terms. He pulled privilege off a report that Mandy had done. Uh, Mandy, the big, big giant uh, incident yeah. response company out there, had done as part of the uh, ongoing uh, Capital One uh, 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 what do we call it? litigation, class action lawsuit. So mm -hmm. he actually declared their report not privileged and he gave reasons why. So we've got some legal professionals and, and, uh, and stuff on next week, kind of breaking that down for us as to what it really means. And it doesn't mean that you can't hire an IR company anymore, but uh, we'll be talking to a few folks about that. Mm -hmm. And thank you all very much, gentlemen. Yep. Thank you, Brian. Yep, John, Thank Kevin, nice you. meeting you guys. Nice meeting you all, Chuck, Kevin, Tom, take care. Thank you, guys. Thanks, okay. John. Have a great weekend, folks. Thanks. Bye -bye. You guys, too. Thank you. Hey, this is Thor. Thanks for listening to the Cyberry Podcast, and make sure to check back next Wednesday for our newest episode.